Hey everyone, just a quick note to tell you to stick around after we say farewell to our guest to hear some announcements from Rob, Troy, and myself. We just have a few notes about the intermittent schedule, some of the things we have planned, and Troy really wanted to talk about how much he loves the Chicago Cubs. But first, here's Chris Park from Arkin Games. Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I am tonight's host, Michael Hermes, in for Rob Zachney, who is on assignment in Tehran. Joining me is Three Moves Ahead founder and benevolent dictator for life, Troy Goodfellow. <laughs> Troy, hello. Is that the epithet or the eponym you're going to give me uh, when you do the summary this week, dictator for life? Benevolent dictator for life. The, the quote, benevolent the modifier is important. Great. Also joining us on this night's show is from Arkin Games founder, programmer, lead developer, Chris Park. Hey, thanks for having me back. Yeah, it's it's been a while. We've had you we've had you on a few times. You're going to be the uh, Tom Hanks of Three Moves Ahead uh, with <laughs> multiple appearances. Um, and we were going to have you on tonight to uh, catch up with what Arkin Games has been doing. Obviously, to talk about your Kickstarter that's going on for AI War Two sequel to one of my favorite games which i'm excited to talk about but uh you know before that i think you've had a you've had a pretty interesting uh year or two um behind you and uh, <laughs> we thought it would be fun to talk about some of the games that we didn't get a chance to cover in a full along the way uh and so just to to dive right in going back to uh 2014 um uh, you had a pretty good pretty good release with um the last federation which was your a, a political game with shoot 'em up real time elements, uh, and as far as I know, it did really well for you. You're usually pretty open about about these things, and uh, I, from what I read in your blog posts and all of your press, um, one of the big boosters for that was uh, Total Biscuit doing a video on it uh, on his YouTube channel. I think that seemed to be a good booster for you. Was that the case? Yeah, um, that was definitely yeah. a. Um... It, it already had a lot of momentum, um, and then mm -hmm. he really loved it, and he did a um, um, – it was on the Co-Optional podcast, and then they did a two-part animated um, version of his, you know, tale of, you know, espionage and piracy and um, dumping toxic waste to win the game and stuff like that, and it was hilarious and uh, piqued the interest of a lot of people, but uh, – that was that was actually our second um that, that actually was our fastest selling title ever and at this point it's our number two grossing title behind um ai war i mean there's two expansions to the last federation at this point and six i want to say to ai war six or seven mm -hmm. and so um ai war has grossed about twice what um, the last federation has at this point, but uh, that's with a lot more expansions over a much greater period of time, um, so on and so forth. So, by some measures, you could actually say the last federation is our most um, successful title. But uh, there, I view AI War as a better game. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. but I really. I uh, have been very pleased with how The Last Federation, uh, that one just went gangbusters really fast. And that was 
um, a surprise for us as well as uh, we took advantage of, I think it was Easter weekend, actually. Um, we released real late mm -hmm. on a Friday on purpose. Um, so we would be right at the top of the new releases list on Steam. And yeah. that was a three-day weekend. And then miraculously, nobody released anything on the Tuesday after that, which was really strange. And so we were the top item on there for like four days, um, which was huge. I mean, that, that used to be the case, like with the Valley of That Wind 1, I mean, you know, we were on the mm -hmm. top 10 new releases for like a month or something. It was insane. You'd be on there forever. But uh, now you get kicked off within a few hours. So we had this weird early momentum with that. And there were a few things that we engineered to you know, at least get it noticed a little better. And then, you know, so that was um, both good luck and good planning and the right game at the right time and a variety of other things. And then it went downhill from there. <laughs> well, I think with, um, you know, what I'm kind of curious about is with AI war, especially, you know, you again, your blog posts, which were always informative and, and very illuminating, you know, I think AI war really benefited from, the early days of steam sales and the steam ecosystem back when being on steam wasn't necessarily a given people weren't entirely sold on the platform yet i think and aor seemed to do really well because again sort of a right timing thing the steam sales especially were very beneficial for you um now with steam this the platform of steam sales has changed the volume of steam games has changed and now it seems like steam is being on Steam is taken for granted, and now the big push for for kind of getting eyeballs on a game comes from YouTubers, comes from Total Biscuits, comes from streamers. Has that changed how you're approaching either your your marketing or your game development at all? Yeah, I mean, we're still trying to figure that out uh, to some extent. Um, to address your first part, I mean, yeah, when AI War uh, was first on Steam, that was 2009, um, and it wasn't necessarily that um, games were, I mean, Steam was still mm -hmm. the market at that point, not to the degree that it is now, but from indie developers' uh, standpoint, um, getting on Steam was like the holy grail because they were the kingmakers, and um Almost nobody got on Steam at that point. I mean, there was like, uh, AI War was like the 74th or 76th title. Um, there was an indie game between 2004 and 2009, October 2009, uh, to get onto Steam. Wow. So it was really early in that regard. Yeah, and, and there were some... Uh, the only reason it did that is because it was on impulse. And since that was owned by Stardock and there was a really highly synergistic overlap with their audience. I mean, we were selling really well. AI war was on Stardock on impulse. And, um, and so, you know, I kept pestering valve about, you know, Hey, look what we're doing over here. We're number one, we're number two, we're still up here, blah, 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 blah. You know, and you know, Tom chick, you know, was writing, uh, at the time for crispy gamer about, you know, this is awesome. And Alec Muir was writing for, uh, PC gamer UK and some various other, um, heavy hitters were 
uh, taking notice of it early. Um, people like uh, Jim Sterling, who was writing for Destructoid at the time, didn't actually jump on until November, uh, which was right after AI War hit Steam, and then suddenly there was a flood of press. But um, there was a lot of luck involved with that as well, as well as just really um, pushing kind of the community aspect and, you know, getting out there and um, at Gamers with Jobs and um, the, gosh, I mean, the Bay 12 forums, mm-hmm. um, the, the whole bunch of different uh, forum communities that were very strong and a lot of them still are. Um, AI war was being talked about and I had Google alerts set up and so then I would show up and like, hey, you got any questions or hey, I see there's a misconception or this, that, and the other. And um, that really made a big difference. And I think we're kind of getting back to that a little bit now. That's something that we're trying to do is, is you know, um, emphasize engagement with the potential customers basically and um that goes along with kind of the youtubers and the yes because a lot of the youtubers are very small some of them are big um but a lot of them don't cover kickstarters for instance um and a lot of times by the time your game comes out on steam it's kind of too late sort of really um it's it's very strange you gotta get that pre-release buzz or what kind of sort of I don't really know. There's some shamanistic something going on at the moment um, with the market. I mean, the markets, and this is not just me saying this. um, I've spoken to other indies as well, um, some of which you wouldn't think would be terribly, you know, you think of these as being, I don't have their permission to say who they are, but I mean, these are like You can tell me later when we're off the thing. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, exactly. They're ones that are like, you know, these would be, really solid indies i would not have thought of them struggling in any sort of way and here they are they're going this market is terrifying and i was kind of like well what do you mean you know because I, I was coming back into the market early this year mm-hmm. and then um like with starward rogue and stuff we came out and it just did not go well and i was like oh man you know i've really messed stuff up and then it's like oh actually the the market really changed since 2014 when i wasn't watching from a developer side quite as much as I perhaps should have been. I was kind of two heads down in the code and, and design. And um, so I'm not really sure that anybody has a perfect answer. Like it's, it's very high risk right yeah. now uh, in general. Is it because of the volume, just the sheer number of games and developers and projects that are coming out? Because I feel like we're at a point where not only is there so much so many games a person can play. There's just so much attention that someone can devote to new titles, new everything, kind of that cult of the new that's going on. Yeah, there's definitely that. And there's also uh, a distinct visibility issue where um, let's take rock, paper, shotgun, for example. Um, They've always uh, covered Arkin to an unusual degree for which i'm really grateful i mean they've taken an interest in what we do sure and um that is something that used to drive a whole lot more uh traffic our direction when they would post an article or um they actually did like a let's play thing on on the original ai war and stuff like that 
Now, it's not that they're a lower traffic site now. If anything, they're actually probably a higher traffic site. But Mm -hmm. the volume of articles and things that they're putting up is also higher. And the volume of sites is higher. And people get some of their content through video now. And, you know, all these different things have changed. So there's more outlets. There's more things going on per outlet. And therefore, as with Steam... Um, something that might have stayed on the front of Kotaku or RPS or wherever for, you know, at least an afternoon, uh, it now just kind of flips on by. And unless you are, (laughs) I guess, subscribed to an RSS feed or something where it's like, here's like everything you missed. Um, You know, even somebody who comes daily to a site like that and or, you know, pretty much daily um we'll get those folks sometimes they'll be like well gosh you know don't you do any marketing like you know haven't you yeah we haven't seen anything like we've been in pc gamer we've been rps we've been blah 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 total biscuit mentioned it but it's like here's the list of publications they're like oh okay wow well i still totally did not hear of this at all and it's a really different situation from 2009 before none of those places really wanted to talk about anything. And now they talk about so many things that the the problem has inverted, but we're back to kind of where we were in, in, in the uh, discoverability issue uh, before nobody would talk about things. You couldn't find stuff. Now everybody talks about so many different things that you can't find stuff. So um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting market. So I want to talk a bit about Arkham's development history and how you find yourself back at AI War 2. Um, because for a long time, I mean, Arkham was one of those studios that has, it's kind of like uh, Clay Games, one of my favorite studios, who which has always made a bunch of different games, all very different from each other. I mean, you look at Skyward Collapse, and you look at Valley Without Wind, and you look at Last Federation, they all look very different. They all play very different. You, you could show them to somebody, and if they hadn't heard of Arkin, they would never have guessed they came from the same studio. Sure. Um, uh, but your most successful games, they've both been science fiction games. They've both been sci-fi strategy games. I mean, it's been AI War and Last Federation. And I going back to AI War, is it just you think that because of the market for those games has been very successful, or you think uh, Arkin a specific talent, or you know, you've figured something out about how to make these games interesting? Because if you listen to our show, you know that we have a lot of issues with um, science fiction strategy games and how they're all very similar to each other. But, you know, AI War and Last Federation both have unique design characteristics i kind of accept they're not they're not 4x games i mean last federation isn't really a traditional 4x game and ai war isn't a traditional rts they both separate themselves and they've been your most successful games they're both science fiction compared to your you know valley with the wind and skyward i liked skyward collapse quite a bit but i could also see why it was i was kind of disappointed it did not get wasn't as successful as it was is there a reason you think that the science fiction games have taken off um I think that's mostly a coincidence, to be honest. But there is, I mean, part of the reason, I mean, there were a couple of reasons why I went with a sci-fi theme way back in 2008 when I was first starting AI War. Um, but one of them was, uh, you know, one that was easier in terms of art and so forth. But the the, the other was that I like 
sci-fi and I like space stuff. I also like fantasy. But there was, I did not like any other space strategy game. They're just, I didn't like Homeworld. I'm sorry, <laughs> uh, you know, to, 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 to folks that, you know, do. Um, you know, I, I didn't care for the, the space uh, expansions to like Empire Earth. And, you know, I, I just, none of the strategy games set in space really did it for me. And so I was like, you know, this would be a good chance for me to see if I can do that better. And I wanted to, you know, I kind of set this goal for myself. I was like, all right, well, I want to feel like Ender Wigan, basically, where it's these insurmountable odds and you go through and you clutch a victory. And um, I think that that in and of itself is different enough um, that that's probably the main reason why it um, succeeded. And I know that Stardock had been kind of planning on doing a, uh, well, they they had taken some inspiration, which I was happy to see for one of their fantasy games that from from AI War, and I was like, awesome! It'll be great to see you know that sort of thing in a fantasy environment. And uh, my understanding is that didn't you know work out terribly well, but um, that's not to say that I don't think that it could. Um, so I th- I think overall. Um, the fact that most of our successful titles are sci-fi is um, somewhat a statistical likelihood because most of our titles are sci-fi. Uh, out of uh, 11 titles, I think nine of them probably are sci-fi. So you, you, mm-hmm. I, I think you picked the only two that aren't. Well, Shattered Haven is the yeah, one Shattered other that's not. Um, right. Last, I think it was either last year or, or late the year before that, you actually, you got me all hot and bothered uh, because you announced <laughs> uh, Stars Beyond Reach, which was going to be your big 4X, uh, more traditional, I think, the way you described it, 4X game. Uh, again, sci-fi, again, set, I believe it was set in the AI War universe. And, you know, I followed the development or I followed your, your writing and somewhere along the line, you decided to put that game on hold. And you ended up working on some other things. First, what kind of brought on that decision? And then also, is it still under? Is it still in the plans to to address this after AI War Two, or where does it stand as far as as a likelihood of release? Um, right now, likelihood of release is maybe fifty fifty. Um, if it, that's something that really remains to be seen so the story with that is essentially i guess over ambition to some extent um it's more traditional of an rt uh 4x rather um but it's also blending in a lot of city building elements and i wanted to i wanted to do it in a unitless fashion um because i feel like the unit management of a lot of traditional like civ type 4x games is one of the more tedious and time consuming and unintuitive i suppose uh things you know you've either got stacks or you've got things that are blocking each other and you know you got a whole bunch of issues and you know i wanted to focus on um construction and territory control and um um basically using buildings to exert 
power over the map. So, you know, you, you say I'm attacking from this building to that other location and, you know, you see little guys run out and shoot and stuff and, you know, then they come back home or they die as they are out there. But, uh, you know, and, you know, there's population numbers, you know, keeping track of that sort of thing. But, um, you know, we had all that sort of thing working and we had it to, what was fairly close to a beta status, I suppose. Um, but I just wasn't happy with it. I felt like it was almost there. This was back in May of 2015. I felt like it was almost there. We'd been working on it for, I guess, seven-ish months at that point. And, you know, with a pretty sizable team. So it was quite expensive. It, all told, at this point, I've spent um, somewhere in the neighborhood of $420,000 Um on making that game, which is now got a 50-50 shot of release. And um, so that is, um, I was like, all right, well, I'm almost there. I went trying to kind of refine some of the things. It's mainly the diplomacy. It's just certain things weren't as intuitive as I would have liked, and certain things felt a little bit off, but there were so many areas that we were innovating in all at one time that it was hard to nail down what needed to stay stable and what needed to morph in order to make the game truly fun. And, you know, ultimately I think it, it needed a longer development cycle and much larger budget. Um, you know, we got all the art done. We got all the music done. Uh, the design documents and so forth were huge and then were rewritten like tons of times as we went through. Like we were extremely conservative with the way that we did prototyping and so forth, I thought. But there was a lot of looking at, okay, do these models mathematically make sense? Is this simulating something in a way that we can see that's clear and that makes sense and so forth? And, you know, when those answers came back, yes, then it was like, all right, hooray, you know, we're doing the right thing. Um, but it was finding the fun that was that was the issue. And so we just kept iterating and iterating. And we finally hit a point where I was like, okay, I either have to continue to go, oh, I'm almost there, I'm almost there. Let's just keep doing this, but we're really running out of money now. Or I can kind of take a step back from that developed this other thing, which was Starward Rogue, and um, kind of recharge and refresh during that period and have another source of income for the company that comes out during that period. Um, and then revisit Stars Beyond Reach. Um, you know, when we chose what I thought was the less risky of those two options, and then Starward Rogue blew up and uh, in a bad way. And, I mean, it came out, did well, critically uh with players in particular largely ignored by most critics critics but uh um you know it has a it's if it could just get enough reviews it's basically towards uh overwhelmingly positive on steam so i mean people like it but it's just um either a victim of the market or it's just a more niche thing than i realize i think it's probably a bit of both but um and there's some issues with how I went about marketing it too. So, I mean, there's, it's not like I'm just like the victim of the market or something. Uh, I gambled in a few ways with that of having a short 
pre-release period and uh, lost on on that gamble, basically. Uh, but I kind of was trying to maneuver what I could with what was becoming kind of a uh, staff-heavy uh, company. And so then we had a big layoff, unfortunately, after that, which I really did not want to happen. Um, and then Keith took over working on Stars Beyond Reach, trying to kind of salvage a... Uh, he's the other programmer and designer, and he kind of just burned it down. And uh, he'd been the lead and mostly sole programmer on Stars Beyond Reach all that time. And so he kind of burned down the design and went back and was rebuilding it up in a way that, you know, we could make a game out of it potentially. Because uh, I was just kind of out of ideas and just really burned out on that project at that point. I was like, you know, he and I have different design philosophies. So I was like, okay, you know, let's see what you can do with this. And we'll, you know, we'll spend X amount of time on this. And then he kind of went through the same pro um, process as I did of just going through, you know, oh, this is kind of cool, but not quite. And this is better, but not still not there. And this is better, but still not there. And at this point, he's at a point where he he was like, okay, I, I where he was saying, I give this a 50-50 shot of this being something I want to develop out further. And, and I'm saying, okay, you know, I'm going to trust your judgment on that. Um, and then we've had a bunch of other things that have sucked his attention away as a studio. And he's had some various life events as well as you know, birth of another child and various other things that kind of took him away from working on that. And so that's mostly just been on ice. And it kind of remains to be seen how our innermost group of alpha testers will react to once he kind of fleshes out some more of the data with that. Um, we'd had about 150 testers uh, with that, and then we scaled way back uh, to just like three or something when um, he was going through the kind of re-super early alpha prototyping after just ripping down what I had done. And um, he stuck a lot to the spirit of what I had been trying to accomplish, but he came at it from a different angle, which I felt like was really a, a needed approach. So we'll see what happens. I, I honestly don't know. Uh, neither does Keith, and, you know, he's the one closest to it. So during that uh, that period where you, you felt like you were kind of burned out at the, the tail end of, of your involvement with that game, is that kind of um, that kind of frustration what led to, in case of emergency, release Raptor? Because that sort of seemed, seemed to come out of left field, but it seemed like a fun project that you could work on on your own. Uh, was, it, was that spurred on by kind of the, the stall you had with Stars Beyond Reach? Definitely. And I mean, I, that, Originally, what I was doing, uh, I decided I'm a big fan of Seven Days to Die, which, you know, is survival horror, uh, sandboxy building type game. And um, the things that I like about it are different from the things that the developers focus on. And I was like, you know, I want to build an open world game that does some, that is a little more action oriented and takes, um, that has more strategic enemies and does this and that with it and um, brings a bit of that kind of strategy flair kind of to it, even though it's staying like first person and, you know, survival. And I started on that project um, in February after Star Wars Rogue um, 
in its layoffs that resulted as in that, that was something where I got into that and I was like, you know, um, it would be smart to take this in steps and not, um, try and do everything, you know, survival sandbox game is a big undertaking. What if we don't do like every last thing under the sun from that right off? And it's like, I've always wanted to make a Velociraptor game. I've loved that since, um, the, uh, Sega Genesis one in the early nineties. Um, both of Valley without wind games have, uh, Velociraptor. Well, one has a Utah Raptor, one has a Dinonychus that you can play as. Um, yeah. But that's a great life goal, right? <laughs> Some people say, I want to run a marathon or I want to climb a mountain, but you say, I want to build a Raptor game. Yeah. And I mean, yeah. And I mean, we almost built a um, futuristic dinosaur themed um, strategy game called Cretaceous uh, a while back. Um, you know, and we wound up making The Last Federation instead. But, um, the you know so i mean i like dinosaurs and so i was like you know this would be really fun and it was kind of a bridge to building up a lot of our 3d capabilities you know so um what i hadn't quite anticipated is in 3d in particular just how challenging making a realistic um non-humanoid uh, character can be it's specifically anything theropod like where you've got um two legs and then a torso that sticks forward and then a tail that sticks backwards because you run into all sorts of clipping issues with that whereas like a straight out quadruped you know you can you can model a collision box on that much easier a dog a horse or whatever um but when you've got something that needs to stand on a small thing that's under its pelvis and then has a big thing that sticks out of the front that becomes problematic quickly so um that actually was a much bigger design um and programming challenge than i thought and uh you know i wound up doing a lot of cool things with um, i tried every approach under the sun but i wound up coming up with some cool uh kind of um custom bone manipulators and detectors and some some IK stuff as well as yada, yada, yada. And so that was a fun project, but it was also a really technically involved project because I got to do a lot of um, new kinds of coding challenges. It was really nice to have something fresh to work on, you know, and work on, you know, 3D model code type stuff for not making a Velociraptor clip into the wall. And, you know, that can be surprisingly... Um, just as challenging as, you know, certain types of AI to my surprise, you know, and, and I really enjoyed the work on that. So, so it was both a, a fun distraction, both in terms of like the type of game. And it was also just really a different kind of very challenging, uh, programming work. And, uh, I, I really enjoyed that, but, um, uh, that didn't work out either. And so here we are again. <laughs> so that leads me to a question that I've been wondering about is throughout your development history, you've made some big, difficult decisions. And I think there, there's always an easier path that you could have taken, but a Valley Without Wind released and either you weren't happy with it or the fans weren't happy with it. So you basically remade the game in a Valley Without Wind 2 and released it for free to everyone who had the game. Um, you put Stars Beyond Reach uh, on hold, 
you ended up pulling Raptor off the Steam store. And and those decisions kind of fly in the face of just saying, well, just get it out the door. We'll fix it later. Just get something out. Like what, what's your, what was your criteria for these, these big things that kind of made things harder for you than that maybe they needed to be in face of relative to the product you could have put out? Does that make sense? Sure. Um, ultimately, I think that well, I have some kind of personal moral qualms about how a lot of the industry does business, but leaving that aside, let's, let's leave morality out of this and let's just talk yes, let's. pure capitalism. <laughs> um, well, seriously, let's just talk pure unbridled greed capitalism. I think that a smart developer, if you're here to score some cash and then run and not make games the rest of your life, then you can afford to do whatever to customers. I mean, if, if, if you don't care about morality, you can do whatever you want to them. Um, if you are hoping to continue in this as a career for the rest of your life, um, you don't want to become like prominent figures that I can think of who serially overpromise and underdeliver. Um, and those are career ending sorts of things and people wind up feeling burned and I would rather lose out on things in the short term, but, um, for one retain my integrity, but then also just from a pure unbridled capitalism standpoint, listen, companies, (laughs) I think it actually makes sense. I mean, if you're a giant company, I guess you can get away with it over and over again, you know, but, especially for smaller companies, I think that there is a sound economic argument made for um, ethics. I think that it pays dividends in the long term. And um, so while I do agree that I definitely made certain things harder on myself than it needed to be, and Valley Without Wind 2 being released for free to everybody was probably very much an... um, above and beyond to the point of a little bit stupid. Um, But pulling Raptor from the store definitely was not. And um, not releasing Stars Beyond Reach, I think definitely was not as well. Because one of the biggest things that I have, or that Arkin has in general as a studio going for it, is that people have a belief that we know how to make strategy games. And, um, you know, I like to think that that's true. And if we release something that we know is a, even if it's not like a terrible strategy game, I mean, we had a lot of testers who were having a lot of fun in Stars Beyond Reach. Some of them were having a lot of, a lot of fun. Um, But there's also a big, big difference between the sort of fun you have when you're like, oh, this is neat. And I see the potential of where this could go. And the sort of fun that you have when you're like, so this is the whole thing. (laughs) and it definitely was not for lack of scope or anything like that it's just that uh all the pieces weren't there and we never could get all the pieces to fit all together um and there were a lot of pieces and so one piece or another was always you know let's ignore that you know pile of of rubble for the moment as we uh focus on this other part and then you know rotate so um my view is that if we started 
putting out strategy games that were uh, notably subpar. For one, I'm not going to get that $420,000 back uh, by doing that. Um, might get some of that money back, but that's um, it, that's that's not the best way to go about getting one's investment back. And um, for two, that really um, puts a damper on any sort of potential future games that we might be able to do. People will uh, approach those with a whole lot more skepticism of like, you know, well, do they even fully believe in this product that they're pushing out? I better really, really check because, you know, they've released stuff in the past where they were like, eh, we thought that, you know, <laughs> you know, I don't want to be disingenuous um, with customers. And so, you, you know, I think you just dig your own grave the more you do that. So let's talk about the Kickstarter then, because for an indie developer doing a Kickstarter, just pretty much building this community is very, very important for indie developers. I know from talking from our own experience at Paradox, you know, when it was a small company, its community was what got it through the lean days so it could be where it is now. Uh, so it's absolutely crucial to build this community, which Arkham, I think, has succeeded at, as you say, building this reputation as a smallish developer making clever and interesting strategy games. A Kickstarter is kind of where the rubber meets the road community-wise, right? I mean, you're asking your community to pay in advance for something that they there's no demo, there's no screenshots, there's well maybe some screenshots, but they're very you know, just UI at this point. Um, they're banking on your reputation, and it's a lot of developers uh, have go go with the Kickstarter. It goes through waves. There was a gold rush a few years ago and then a dip, and now some studios are finding success and some not. Uh, why did you choose to go to Kickstarter for AI War 2 first? And second, what has been your plan on getting the word out both to your community and outside your community and addressing any concerns within the community? Right. So I have said for years, uh, back to 2011 or maybe I don't know, along those lines, that I am super glad Kickstarter exists, and I've always said, and I hope I never have to use it. And <laughs> my feelings on that have not particularly changed. However, um, Kickstarter allows things that otherwise couldn't exist to exist, I feel like. And uh, part of that is that in a race to the bottom sort of market, um, again, let's be um, unbridled capitalists here for a second. Um, the capture per customer is vastly higher with a Kickstarter than it is somewhere else. And if you have a strong built-in fan base and you're confident that you can not let them down and, you know, dig your own grave basically with... Uh, you know, having a Kickstarter that then implodes, then I think it's a sensible platform. Now, I make experimental games usually that are something that we go through a lot of prototyping during development, and we start with a design document, but it morphs a ton, and there's a lot of uncertainty on exactly what the final game will even be to some extent. Like, there's core goals, but there are features that come in and out, and, you know, that's the nature of the experimental kind of R&D approach that we usually take. So with Stars Beyond Reach or something, I would have been like the grade A moron 
try and put that on Kickstarter because not only could I have not promised like a concrete feature set that I would be, that I would not be regretting being locked into later, but I also um, wouldn't really be assured that it could stay in the budget time-wise or money-wise that I had uh, expected. I mean, I had intended to spend about $200,000 on that and 420 later, here we are, you know, and that's, you know, out of what would have been net to Arkin. So, you know, for a Kickstarter, that would have been, for Stars Beyond Reach, we would have had to raise like over three quarter million dollars to equal that 420 that I, that I put in out of like past Arkin proceeds. And so um, with that sort of project, it was just a no brainer to not do Kickstarter for me. It just was an incredibly bad idea. For AI War 2, it's not, a an experimental prototypey sort of game we're doing some new stuff but we've made ai war um for the last seven years you know we've been expanding it and uh just reworking the core consistently we switched engines at one point we added new platforms we've done a whole bunch of stuff with it and um, we kind of hit a brick wall of where we could take that in the existing kind of engine framework that it has. And so it's like, okay, it's time to start fresh. And I think that the excitement is there uh, for customers. And I think that uh, we have the fan base to do it because it's, you know, we've just seen articles go by on RPS and stuff. You know, one of the, I think they picked it as number 25 on their, you know, greatest strategy games of all time list and stuff like that. So there's still a lot of affection and, you know, it's sold about a million copies of DLC and about a third of a million copies of the base game. And so uh, going in there with a um, roughly $300,000 Kickstarter, it's like to reach that in a conservative fashion, we have to basically have... 3% of our existing customers for the base game say, yeah, I'd like a little more of that. And so having, um, you know, and basically go in at kind of the average Kickstarter uh, um, funding level that, that you see. And so reaching 3% um, with a game that's been critically acclaimed and that a lot of players liked and that we were addressing a lot of core concerns, namely graphical quality and learning curve and interface and so forth. That should be a slam dunk. Uh, right. And obviously uh, I did not go into this thinking, Hey, this is a slam dunk, but at the same time it was a, well, if anything is going to work on Kickstarter that Arkin is, is going to do, then now's the time uh this this is the game um because there's not another title i would want to do this with at this time i mean in the foreseeable future let me put it that way uh because it's just too experimental with anything else to where i'm not sure that i could deliver um what the people thought they were backing essentially you know it delivers them something else that maybe all you know 75 percent of them love and 25 percent of them were like what is this? That's not what you said it was going to be. Like, that's cool and all, but actually I hate it or it's okay, but it's still not what I asked for. So, you know, with AI War 2, we went through and we're like, okay, well, we know exactly uh, how to make AI War 1. 
uh, what's going to make AI War 2 different? Let's make a giant design document. Let's talk with our community. And, you know, we had just, we spent about a month and a half just talking in depth with our community and building up this design document and kind of building pre-awareness and all this sort of stuff. And um, so we have about 160 pages of design document at this point. Uh, we have full tech prototypes of kind of the back end stuff as well as um, the front end like visual side of things so that we're sure that we can actually do what we're what we're saying you know, we've run metrics on you know some of the performance improvements and that sort of thing um, and uh, you know we came out strong out of the gate um, and that was that was uh, definitely encouraging to see we didn't hit that magic 25% uh, funded number in three days, we hit 15 instead. And um, that still is misleadingly high to some extent because we had such a surge of community backing uh, right at the start. That kind of makes it look a little different than the normal graph uh, for your average Kickstarter where there's not quite such a built-in community. And so... Uh, that meant that the real graph was actually lower than 15%, so to speak. Um, that that 15% was artificially high. So now we're at the point where uh, the campaign is moving along, but at far too low of a level. Um, and it's really following the average Kickstarter um, graph, from what I can tell, except that the initial spike is higher relative to the rest of the graph thanks to the uh, community that we have. Now, uh, reaching our existing customers is the big thing because um, out of those 300-some thousand customers that we have, um, we have contact information for, I'm going to generously say 5,000 maybe um, on the high end. It's probably closer to three. So uh, that makes it very much at the mercy of social media and existing customers telling other existing customers, existing customers happening to check the Steam page for the game, which, ha, 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 you know, on a game that's seven, yeah, a game that's seven <laughs> years old, I mean, they don't see the news feed for that. Um, so that's put us in a bit of hot water at this point where, we're trying to go, well, you know, if we were just able to send an email to those uh, 300,000 customers and we had a roughly three hundred, sorry, a roughly 3% uptake rate, or if we had a lower uptake rate, but they were more enthusiastic than your average backer, then we'd be in really good shape. Um, there's no question we could do it. Well, I don't, I don't want to brag or anything, but this show has literally dozens of listeners, and <sighs> I, uh, I think that's really going to help, help the. I help appreciate the it. Yeah, the design. Doc, this is this is the masterstroke of, of yeah. my plan. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the 162 page design doc is a fascinating read, and I'll link to that in the notes, which I will totally remember to post this week. What are what are some of the bigger first of all kudos to you on your prolific writing because it's one of the things I've always liked is just the pay, I don't know how you have time to design things with the pages and pages and pages you write um but what what are the heavy hitters on the design doc if if someone liked AI war the first game 
what what are some of the things that you think are are the the big line items that that push AI War Two into into an improvement over the first one? Sure. So it really depends on um, exactly what tar- part of the um, market that person's in. If they wanted to like AI War, uh, but just were turned off by the uh, kind of learning curve, then for them. The casual, the casuals, you mean? I don't even mean the casuals. No, I, mean, I do. That's me talking. Go like, ahead. Yeah, there's a lot of people that like Crusader Kings or whatever, and they're like, "Oh, but AI war now." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you this, know? Is honest, this is honestly true. Yeah, I know. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's, there's a uh, AI war is kind of the dwarf fortress of of strategy titles. I mean, it's beyond uh, paradox on that, and that's not to say that it's um, that that's that's not a compliment. Uh, okay. Wow, I just slammed Dwarf Fortress without meaning it. Dwarf Fortress is awesome. That's not what I meant. <laughs> but uh, Paradox, you know, is very complicated. But but you, you know, you guys have figured out a lot of the interface things, and you know how to kind of convey um, complicated ideas in a way that you know you're not having to get hit in the face with the fire hose as soon as you open the door to the game, basically. And with the games that we've made in the last seven years, I'd like to think that we have shown that we can do that as well. Like the last federation um, is weird. It is like, I mean, like you said, it's not a normal 4X in any sort of fashion, um, but it gets you in there without even having like a really heavy handed tutorial. Um, it kind of is a let's tutorialize you as you play sort of thing. And so you don't even have to go through like the standard RTS 4X, whatever, um, tutorial campaigns or tutorial scenarios or whatever first. And so um, a lot of that comes down to, you know, interface improvements and all that. So for those people that were scared off by the learning curve, um, some of that comes down to this time we're heading in with a much better grasp of how to do a proper interface that really gets things across. We've actually been working with our community on kind of this game grew up organically over a long period of time. And so there were some redundancies and features and things we could combine and things that took three steps and some, you know, a little bit of, you know, toad's foot and stuff that you had to learn about where to find on the wiki or whatever, you know, and, and then now it's just like, you know, you push the button and it happens. And that's not at all a dumbing down of things, but it's just a matter of there was no reason to go through like, you know, that many interface clicks and you build this thing on the one planet, and you move it over here and then you do the other thing and you have to know this in advance to make it happen. It's like, you want to do this thing. Now let's make that thing happen. That can be one button click, you know, uh, there, there's, it adds nothing except, um, just play, t- you know, irritation, busy work, even for advanced veterans, you know, let's just let you get at the game uh, more easily. So for those sort of people that like the idea of it, but gave it a miss, um, I think this is the game that, you know, the sequel here is the one that actually could capture you in a good way, <laughs> I hope. Um, for people who did like the first one, uh, we've got a ton of improvements that make they're more kind of on time and less Netflix time, as people say. And so uh, things, everything from what we call like refleeting after you have taken a major, what we call fleet wipe, where you go in and you've attacked a planet or 
done or maybe you've been attacked and your economy is now chugging away at rebuilding your uh, fleet so you can go do something else. Um, normally, on a kind of middle-of-the-road player approach, that is not actually a super time-consuming thing. But there were enough people that would try and play in very either conservative or aggressive fashions, depending on how exactly you want to define those terms, uh, where they would um, take a lot of... Uh, Take a very low AI progress hit, if that makes any sense to people who are listening. And basically, very low notice from the AI in in exchange for a slower economy. And so then refleeting would be a major time sink for them. And um, so for that, we're adjusting it so that instead of it being a big time sink on your end, where you're kind of burning real world time. Instead, it makes some of the AI things happen faster. So in other words, rather than just stretching things out, instead, some bad things that were going to happen anyway um, happen faster. Uh, And so that way it's kind of a get on with it sort of uh, situation where hopefully we can shave about 30% of the time off of the average veteran players uh, playtime whatever their playtime is hopefully we can shave about 30 percent off uh so that it's basically more of the meat and less of the water and um with that we've got just um various new additions and uh new things that we can do in the, the engine with having um squadrons and ships that really feel you know a sense of scale that you can really uh, kind of palpably feel these giant ships and these tiny little one-man fighters and things. And then being able to play as multiple different races, that was something that uh, we had some campaigns, like there's a thing called the Fallen Spire campaign uh, in the original game. Well, not in the original game, but in the fifth expansion, I think, to the original game, where if you started out playing normally, but then did this kind of side quest thing, then you could wind up with this giant Spire Imperial fleet uh, that basically had, these were just incredible juggernauts of ships. And you could go basically into conquest mode, essentially, in that fashion, where you could go head-to-head with the AI, which is against the normal premise of the game, where you're the guerrilla fighter. And with this expansion, uh, we're having multiple races where they kind of play... Uh, differently you've got the the human race which plays like it did before more or less you've got the spire which basically skips to the end of that spire the fallen uh spire campaign and says okay you're giant go head to head let's see what happens this is going to be really different you know and it's going to be intense and it's going to be shorter and it's going to be bloody (laughs) um and then you have the zenith which are kind of in the middle of those two is i guess the best way to uh put it but they each have their own uh, flare. They use very different units. They're not reskins of one another with some different tech. Um, it's not like different uh, factions in something like, um, uh, you know, Age of Empires or, you know, whatever. Um, these aren't even balanced against one another because they don't have to be. They're all player side factions. And so uh, the Spire are free to be more powerful 
of course, with greater repercussions from the AI. And if that winds up being an easier game mode overall, it's not really a problem per se. It's just it's just different. Um, and given the uh, plethora of lobby options that we have, um, being able to really custom tune not only how difficult things are, but in what ways they're difficult is something that carries over into this as well. And um, we're adding more options there for the advanced players and making the lobby also a lot cleaner and tidier for the new person so they don't get a brain aneurysm as soon as they open the lobby and go, oh, I'm supposed to do what in this? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so basically that there's actually more options, but they're kind of a little more, you know, not right in your face, you know. Um, so you can do kind of just like, let's just start the game or let's start the game with a few tweaks or let's rebuild the engine here, folks. We're pulling off the, the front of the car, you know, whatever you want to do. So do you have any analytics that demonstrate how people play the game that might be affecting how you design it in the future? Um, most of our, uh, player base would be pretty unenthusiastic about analytics, I think. Um, and so we've not done those no, I mean, like, in the like, past. Like, do you have, like, do you have an internal analytics, like, of the how the players play? Do they prefer multiplayer? Do they prefer different sorts of setups? I mean, yeah. Do you have any backend information that's helping you? We don't uh, design where the game should go. We don't track any of that sort of information. A big selling point with a lot of our customers is that it's completely like hands off. You know, no. No DRM, no contacting central servers, that sort of thing. Now, we might change that into an opt-in thing in the future because, boy, I would love to have that sort of information. But what we do... Because uh, yeah. we, 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 we do that tracking through Steam, which right. is kind of interesting. and get some information, so yeah. Right. And, you know, Unity has a whole new analytics thing that they just rolled out this year right. as well. And um, I think that's probably what we would use if we switch to an opt-in thing. Um, but um, we have so, 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 mostly so what do you self-reported. What, what, what do you want to know about your players? Um, for the most part, it would be what game options they're using. And a lot of the other stuff comes down to self-reporting, honestly, because I can't make any informed decisions about things based on playtime because pe- the playtime to people can mean different things. We've had some people that have only played. There were some prominent uh, players of AI War that that were, you know, really big in like the bug reporting group and all that sort of stuff back in 2010 and so forth. They only ever played one campaign of AI War ever. Um, But they spent 120 some real-time hours on it. And that was the one game of AI War they ever played. And they did it in a really atypical fashion and it went over like a year and a half of patches and stuff. And so it evolved a lot as they went too. Um, But they were playing a game where they were trying to capture all, I think there was a 100 planet map and they were trying to capture all 100 planets. Now, normally that is like the worst idea ever. Um, but they had set this as a challenge for themselves and they were playing on, I think, difficulty five and six, which is a, um, it's a lower sort of difficulty. Um, but based on what they were then trying to do on that lower difficulty, it was an insanely difficult challenge. So the, you know, 
how do you even get metrics off of that? You know what I mean? Because here, here are these two guys that have only ever played one game of AI War, but they've got this ridiculous amount of, of actual campaign time logged, and they uh, are playing on a pretty pushover-ish difficulty level, and yet it's been like this mo- one of the more epic games of AI War that ever happened because of the way in which they kind of played counter to the normal rules of the game. And so we, we really rely on a lot of uh, self-reporting uh, for finding out how people are enjoying the game and what things they don't enjoy. And uh, we've logged, I think, about, um, I think we, we're up to about 19,000 uh, total uh, issues that are a mixture of bugs, feature suggestions, um, general feedback um, between all of our games. I think probably about 13,000 of those maybe are AI war related, maybe 11, somewhere in that neighborhood. And so we've got a pretty good idea of what the vocal minority thinks. And we also have a pretty good idea of what a lot of the kind of mouthpieces, I suppose, of the other majority that like, said, eh, war sounds neat, but holy smokes, that's complicated. You know, we have a pretty good idea of what those guys are thinking as well. And so we're kind of going based off of those two things plus what what, what we want to see. And um, that, to somebody who's data-oriented, might seem like we're kind of shooting in the dark, but I think that uh, um, we're not airing... We, we take the hardcore communities stuff with a grain of salt to some extent because it those that group can really steer you down the wrong path sometimes with with the best of intentions um but you get something that becomes you know ever more uh niche so <laughs> yeah they, they want things to be wonkier more hardcore to be harder more to, they've already beaten all your challenges now they want more right and i'm perfectly happy to 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 provide that sort of experience um, and they're a really good check and balance for us in terms of making sure mm-hmm. that we don't dumb down the game as we're streamlining it. And so with all the various things that we were streamlining, um, you know, to a lot of people, that's a really good word. To some people, that's a really bad word. And I really was uh, very excited to be able to vet those things in particular with those people, because if they were on board with those things that we were streamlining, then I knew that nobody would be going, oh, this is SimCity Societies or whatever, you know? And uh, SimCity Societies was a good game. Don't you start on <laughs> SimCity Societies. Sorry. Okay. How about uh, Civilization <laughs> Revolution? I kind of like that also one, Also a good game, I, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> uh, sp- Speaking of Civ, and you, we're we're close to our time here, but I love getting your your take on some of these things. Uh, so I, I want to wrap up with a question that you know, on the eve of a, a new Civilization game, there's the problem of a game that's had a long shelf life and many expansions, like AI War, which has had six expansions and new game concepts added constantly, and now you're releasing a sequel which begs the question of how do you go about essentially starting over? Do you start over? Uh, do you feel obligated to retain as much of the game as you had before? Is, or is this a case where you can basically start over fresh and kind of redirect things in a better way? Um, what's, what's your take on the, the, 
these vast games that have kind of their second breath in the the sequel. So this is where um, I would want the this is where I would want the metrics on what features players use um, because that that can be looked at in a sort of agnostic way um, out of context and still make some degree of sense. Um, there are some features that nobody seems to use um, mainly because we don't hear about it or because we're like, Hey, is like anybody playing defender mode? And like, you know, we don't get any bug reports about it. And so we're pretty sure like nobody's really playing that mode. That was a marquee feature of our fourth expansion. It was really, really hard, Chris. It was really hard. (laughs) That was that that, was the point. I get it. It was really hard. It was supposed to be, it was supposed to be intense and short. Yeah. You know, and ideally something that you could kind of serially replay without it, you know, completely burning the the house down around you, I guess. But it, yeah, we just, um, part of the difficulty of that, why that was so hard is that we didn't have a, uh, enough balance feedback to really nail that down. You know, we had players who'd been begging us for that for a couple of years prior to us implementing it. And then when, you know, it actually came time to implement it, they were more interested in some of the other stuff we were adding in that expansion. And they played that for the most part instead. And we're like, Hey, how about, you know, some feedback over here on, you know, defender mode. And, you know, we got some, but not a huge amount. So we're like, well, okay. I mean, based on our testing and their testing, this is the best we can do, but man, this does not feel, as polished as the rest of the game, but I guess this just has to get to a larger uh, audience first. And then that happened and the rest of the audience was not interested and they intended, you know, they, they continued to be super interested in everything else. So that fell into further and further disrepair. And so it's like, um, and people were saying, you know, well, what features aren't coming to the sequel? You know, the very first thing, you know, raised my hand. And I'm like, oh, Defender mode, that one's not coming, you know, because clearly nobody valued it. Um, and so, yes, to get at the core of your question, um, absolutely feel a huge uh, pressure to retain as much as possible from the first game. And that actually is a big problem because that can inflate the budget a lot and make things untenable. And there's certain things that, you know, we had to cut that we knew people liked a lot, like champions and modular ships are two of the big ones and, and the fall inspire campaign actually as well. But we have kind of counterparts in some ways we've got motherships, which are a lot more central to the game and kind of get at some of the idea of champions without being fully in that, you know, champions were kind of a mini game within the game, and some people really didn't like them. A lot of people really liked them, and you could play with them or not. And, you know, we've got motherships now, which are a lot more palatable for the general audience that we think everybody will like and that are part of the core game. And we can do champions again in the future if this takes off. Um, but in the meantime, we could set that aside and say, look, that's a game within the game. 
that just had to be set aside for budget reasons. And people understand when they look at the 160 page document there, it can be like, yeah, okay. Yeah. You're, you know, you weren't like leaving out religion or, you know, whatever in the like Civ five cents, you know? And so, um, with the, and like with the fallen spire and so forth, you know, we've got the spire faction now and things like that. So we tried to have counterparts, wherever possible where we could say, Hey, this is fresh and new and we're taking it in a new direction. Um, because we don't, we don't want to just give you the same thing again, but with better graphics, cause that's the other end of that spectrum. Um, and so we want to fall somewhere in the middle. We're bringing forward all the things that you like, but, um, you know, not breaking the bank on implementing every last little thing. And where we also retain some freedom to do, some genuinely new things that some of the older features might have been preventing. Um, so that's, it's always, I mean, it comes down to it being an art, not a science, really. And you kind of go by feel. And that was another reason why I really wanted to do such an exhaustive design document, because especially going into a Kickstarter, I wanted people to be exactly clear on what they were going to be getting out of that sequel because I didn't want people to be going, oh, Champions isn't in there at 1.0. You know, I feel ripped off. You know, like, that's my favorite thing to play with. Like, uh, are you going to add those post 1.0? And we say, I don't know. Um, now I can say, I don't know. And they can be okay with that or not. But either way, I'm not misleading them. So I'm okay with it. And, uh, um, it, it it really made it a uh, much more straightforward process, and we were able to work with uh, uh, even amongst our core players. There's a wide variety of ways that they play. Some play against very high difficulties. Some play very low AIP. Some play very small galaxies. Some play really long campaigns, etc. And so we were able to kind of get feedback from all those camps and make sure that we didn't. Um, kill the ability for any of those play styles to remain. And so we kind of figure, okay, well, that will handle the majority of cases. And if anybody squawks, um, we can address that post 1.0, but we seem to have hit all of the most major factions and uh, in terms of within the player groups. So it, it's a tough thing, you know, and I think that you really have to, bring forward most of the things from the prior games or else don't call it a sequel, call it something else. Like um, we talked about a Valley without wind earlier, you know, when I did a Valley without wind too, uh, part of the reason that that went over not as well, uh, that gets played about the first game in the Valley without wind pair gets played about 10 times more than the second one uh, based on steam metrics since Steam tracks playtime, I do have metrics on that. And, uh, I mean, it's like 10 to 1. It's crazy. Um, and, yeah, and the first one is a Metroidvania um, kind of shmuppish ad adventure exploration game. The second one is kind of a Metroidvania Contra-like, more like. And those are different genres. And... We switched genres, essentially, between the first and the second games. I mean, they're switch, this is switching of subgenres, 
But I think the second one would have gone over much better with a lot of the other players had it not been called a Valley Without Wind 2 because they expected everything from the first one to be present there. Personally, I think the second one's... Actually, I don't even know which one is uh, a better game, honestly. Mostly, I prefer playing the second one. I get a lot of enjoyment out of the Contra-like elements of it. But um, the sense of exploration certainly is less than the first. So, I mean, it's like, you know, where do you, where do you draw the line with that? You know, it, in, in, in certain areas, you just shouldn't call it a sequel. And so if you're going to go that different, you know, call it, you know, a spinoff at best. You know, Civilization Revolutions, even though that wasn't quite a sequel per se, it was expected to have everything by a certain camp, and um, they were then heartily disappointed by it. I actually actually played it on mobile and, and kind of liked it for the, for that. Um, but it, you know, I can see where the criticisms come. So, well, I think it's it's clear what you need. Then moving forward is uh, everyone's going to back AI War Two. And everyone's going to check the little box that you're going to put in there for send anonymous analytics. <laughs> and then that's going to make your life a hell of a lot easier. It would. You know, it would be really nice if everybody would like to sign up for a mailing list or something. Because uh, as it is, like all of our distributors have that information. And we as the developer slash publisher don't. So we can't contact our own customers. And um, uh, as a customer, of course, I greatly understand that. Because I don't want uh, to be on every developer's mailing list that I ever got a game from or possibly got a game from a bundle or whatever. Uh, but at the same time, it'd be nice to for players to be able to opt in and like, hey, you know, hear about new releases from these guys. You know, <laughs> my, my suggestion actually was... Uh, that it's like a program that you opt into of like developers can contact me if they can send me an email and uh, if if they have a game that's in my library and you just blanket opt into that if you want to. And then the first time that a developer messes up and sends you something you don't want to hear about, then you're like, nope, you're silent forever. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so developers are encouraged to be on their very best behavior when they're contacting players uh, and making sure that they're really saying something that's interesting. I thought that would be kind of a... Um, a uh, kind of mix of a white and blacklist approach where uh, it's opt-in and opt-out. Um, uh, probably they'll never do it, but that would be such a cool thing. Uh, I mean, I wish y'all the very, very best of luck. I mean, Arkin's been one of these studios that I've you know watched for a very long time and have read. Uh, you know, a lot of people championed mentioned Alec and Tom's work, and I'm really looking forward to AI War. Uh, too, especially if you can make it easier to understand. I tried to get back and play it today, and realized I forgot how. I'm realizing <laughs> this is a this is a common problem for me, uh, forgetting how to play strategy games from more than five years ago. So yeah, clearly, uh, Michael has to give me a tutorial. There you go. Yeah, I mean, I I find it difficult to to play at this point too, to be honest. Um, I'm just out of practice and I, my hands don't use the correct hotkeys anymore and that sort of thing. Like Last Federation, no problem. AI War, it, it needs a redo. I mean, it needs an update, you know. <laughs> 
Well, just just talking about it was enough for me to uh, go to my Steam library. I haven't hit install yet because I don't want it to mess up the Skype call, but I am going to play it tonight. Nice. <laughs> every time every time we talk about it somewhere, I always have to go back and replay it. Wait, we should we should we should do a multiplayer game sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd be up for that. So, Chris, thank you so much for coming. I think uh, your your view is always appreciated, and and your your take on everything is is unique, and um, you know just just really fun to hear about. So, thank you so much for coming back. Well, thanks for, very much for having me. I mean, you guys have a lot of great discussions on here, so it's it's uh, very fun to come. And uh, if listeners want to comment, we we like feedback too. We like uh, <laughs> audience uh, information. Um, we got some great feedback on our 3MA After Dark episode. It was great to have people chime in and say they enjoyed it. So uh, if you do like it, head over to the Idle Thumbs forums and uh, let us know what you like or dislike. And uh, while you're uh, on the internet, take a take a walk over to the AI War 2 Kickstarter. There will be links, like I said, uh, in in the forum. So, uh, with that, on behalf of Chris Park and Troy Goodfellow and everyone at Three Moves Ahead, thanks for listening and good night. Okay, and now we're back. It's me and Troy, and we also have Rob. Rob is here. Hi, Rob. How's it going, everybody? It's going pretty well. Uh, I figured we'd all get together tonight, just have a few notes for the audience, for the crowd uh, who's been listening, just to let them know that we're still here. And... uh, it's been a little bit of a crazy summer. Our schedule's been a little bit off, but we're still... What are you talking about? Uh, are we? <laughs> <laughs> been a hell of a two-season stretch, but... Uh, Everything's fine. No, yeah. It, it, has been, it has been a ridiculous summer, um, especially, like, being on the planning side of it. I think it's, it's been even a little more of a, uh, a tire fire than, than people might have gleaned from the uh, fr- from the intermittent, shall we say, posting schedule, uh, and you know, frankly, a lot of that is is on me. Um, and it's you know, it's different. This is a difficult situation to address because, like, there's a lot of elephants in the room that I can't I can't fully address. Like, obviously, like Troy and Michael, you know, you know, you know, you know, it's been going on. But like, uh, it's been a summer of a lot of like personal and professional change and disruption. And uh, I think the theory back when we sort of. You know, I got my new place, and we sort of got set up for the summer back in, like, July. Uh, And I was like, things are fine. Everything's going to be sort of running smoothly from here. Uh, The theory was that, you know, all that disruption and change and everything would settle down, and ultimately this would be, like, a a huge net positive. Uh, And I think the reality's proven to be a little more complicated than that. Yeah, and I think a lot of that falls on, you know, partly... I got out of the habit of organizing shows, uh, so I've really got back into pulling. I've got to get back into pulling my weight uh, more as a co-host and co-owner uh, of the show, and try to get things moving until things stabilize in a more sensible way. We do have schedules, we do have plans. We don't, you know, make this stuff up as we go along. But you know, you have a show, and then you have, yeah, okay, we make up some things. But you know, you have a show, you have a schedule, then you realize, wait a minute, we can't do that this week. We got to push it off another week. Uh, there's a show in the works and, you know, uh, it's been release of the game has been delayed. So that changes our schedule a bit. Um, and also, you know, aligning people up to co-host with us, uh, is sometimes challenging, but we have a nice deep bench, uh, we can work with. Um, we need to maybe rely on those a little bit more, but also it hasn't exactly been a outstanding, I think three months for strategy games in general. 
Um, so I'm not going to say, yeah, you didn't miss us, but. But Troy did. Come on. But Troy did. <laughs> I, no, I, I hate all of you. Um, no, Troy's uh, like, I, I had nothing to talk about this summer. It sucks. <laughs> Stubs out a cigarette played, in the, uh, in the three percent ashtray. I played so few games this summer that were not uh, Paradox games uh, that I would have been, you know, pretty useless uh, without the schedule to follow. Um, the things that, like, I know what I need to be playing for the next, you know, four weeks. Uh, the games that I have to be focusing on. Um, so, and I think that you know, I've always been jealous of the podcasts or shows where the entire show is, hey. Let's get together and jam about what we've been doing. What happened this week? What's in the news? And uh, yeah. we we always have been and will be, I guess, a feature show or a topic show where we have specific things mm-hmm. to talk about. But the feedback for the Three Moves Ahead After Dark episode, which I mentioned previously in the show, uh, was really good. If if that's something you'd like to hear on a semi-regular basis, drop a drop a line at the forums. Let us know that. Let us know what you like. Yeah, and if you didn't like it, like also let us know because I because I think that's a format that uh, you know I think historically we've been wary of trying both because it's not really in the show's DNA, uh, but also I think we have a tendency to feel like if we're not sort of offering up what we're sort of known for offering to listeners uh, that somehow we've screwed up, right? And uh, so like to hear the feedback on that show was was positive is is uh, really nice to hear, but but also kind of amazing to me because uh, I was totally expecting to like start getting the uh, the hate mail uh, going at that point. Not that not that our listeners are super hate mail types, uh, although um, yeah, but okay, there's a lot of people who are obsessed with plosives. I will say a lot <laughs> of people have strong <laughs> feelings about people's they have powerful bike decorum. feelings about plosives. <laughs> yes, yes, they do. Uh, they they think our plosives could be better uh, and mm. such. Our what? What's a plosive? It's the the popping noise when you're talking to a microphone. That's why I've got a little pop oh. screen in front of mine. Uh, but it, oh, yeah. that's so they're making fun of my speech impediment. Great, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty that's much it. Um, okay, thanks, thanks, guys. Love you all too. Yeah. So so I think, but that's that's the only that's the only part of it is uh, the the fact that every show is sort of arranged as a feature has has definitely made it a little tricky. Honestly, you know what has been really surprising for me though is how huge a difference being three hours behind y'all has made for scheduling. Yeah, that's wild. Uh, like it doesn't it doesn't sound like that big a deal, but the problem is we've historically recorded. Uh, at least half our shows, maybe more, on weeknights. And now that's become almost entirely unworkable because I don't even know if I'm going to be back in my apartment by like 9 or 10 Eastern. Uh, and and there, there, there are times when that, that's the plan and it just doesn't, it doesn't work for a variety of reasons. Uh, but it's, it's been a surprise that this was an obstacle that I thought would be easy to overcome. And it has proven to be a monumental pain in the ass. So we should both move to the West Coast because Bruce is moving to the West Coast. So we should all just move to the West Coast and then we'll uh, we'll be back on track. Yeah, but hold your hold your horses, though, because like I was just in Chicago this past weekend and Woo. I got to say, I think they're living the good life in Chicago. Yeah, this is God's time zone here. I'm in Milwaukee uh, for anyone who didn't know. And this is the central time zone, best time zone. Yeah. the Yeah. The heartland, really. Right. 
Um, yeah, I'm not leaving. <laughs> I'm not leaving so Toronto ever again. Uh, the 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 thing is, uh, as disruptive as disruptive as the schedule has been, uh, we've got like eight episodes basically, like almost ready to roll. Uh, I was I was I was fussing around with the yeah. planning document today, and like because there's been a bit of a backlog, like. There's actually a lot of stuff we're sort of ready to break ground on, uh, including a sort of uh, mildly tardy uh, and like a legend. little bit, like a little uh, bit, like tardy. It's like a few. It's, it's been like a couple weeks, like uh, no big, a couple of something, yeah. But the endless yeah, legend show yeah. is still happening, and uh, we have something pretty neat planned for it. So I, I do like that. Uh, I like we we cocked that up so hard. That a new expansion came out. Yep. And the game sort of became timely again. Now it's relevant. We that was actually partially no, that wasn't planned. That wasn't planned at it all. Isn't, yeah, it's, but but uh, but it's a nice feature, not a bug. I would say. <laughs> I mean, I'm glad we are going around to it because you know, I really do like the voter topics. Uh, if you are listening and you don't contribute to our Patreon, if you contribute to a certain Patreon uh, level, you get to vote on a topic for one of our shows once a month. And those are kind of fun for us because I like seeing the results. But they, we try to pick themes people can draw from. Um, and I always am curious to see how that turns out. So I'm glad we are going to do the user-chosen uh, Endless Legend that's, show. That's pushed us in some interesting directions. Uh, this week I'm putting together a, a duelist show. Uh, for for the next week or so uh and you know then we had kind of a weird trip down memory lane with uh with dark rain uh so those are yep. definitely sort of pushing us into uh unexpected areas as far as as far as strategy coverage goes uh but but yeah so those are those are of course uh you know listener chosen uh and of course we've also got a q and a episode uh that we're going to be recording very soon for for patreon backers but uh you know if you're curious about the patreon uh you know you can go to three three m a uh on you can look up look us up on patreon dot com slash three m a uh but but really like i don't know i would consider uh you know, let us get back on track before, uh, if you're not already a backer, uh, let us sound the all clear and, uh, and, and then you can, you can hop aboard this, uh, this well-oiled machine. Huh. As it careens over the cliff. No, uh, I, no, I think, I think, I think, well. I think we went over the cliff. I, I think, uh, I, I think now we're sort of back on the ascent. I, I think so. It's a it's a pretty busy fall coming up. You know, we have a civilization coming out. Uh, by the time people listen to this, it'll be coming out probably in two days or tomorrow, uh, depending on when this show goes up. And of course, that's going to eat our lives. Um, and there's a bunch of other great, interesting things happening this fall, this fall and winter, I think, uh, in the strategy game space. Plus, you know, we should get back to doing some more theme shows. If you have suggestions for shows, feel free to send those in too, um, because. I'm not at my most creative right now. Well, we have the four. Do we have a dedicated email address? I don't even know because I'm not the one who checks it. We do. Uh, don't we? Yeah, it's 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 questions at threemovesahead.net. Sweet. Send it. Send them there or post in the forums. Either way. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. I, or my personal email, which you can find very easily. So. Man, you know, like this is how bad the end of the summer and early fall has been. I had early access to Civilization Six. What? And didn't what? play it. What? That's two things no, I'm mad at you how? today about. No, for real. Oh my god! Like no, like oh like this hasn't been like. Oh, I've just been sort of flaky about this. Like 
they were like, hey, you want Civilization Six? And I was like, I sure do. And they were like, here you go. And I was like, oh, I don't know. Like, I, I'll, I'll play it tomorrow. I'll play it tomorrow. Tomorrow never came. So I don't know if I'm mad or if I just feel even worse now. Uh, on your, I, on like, your behalf, it's, like <laughs> it's it's definitely really bad. It's it's it, it's like I had a Christmas yeah. present, uh, you know, sitting under the tree, and then the tree burned down. <laughs> uh, that's that, and then and sort of burned the house down. And, it's like and now you, you got the really co- you got the really cool transformer that I've been bitching about that I couldn't play for the last two weeks, and I did not know you had this cool transformer. Yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, uh, no, I mean, I, I I could have been I could have been living the dream, and like you know, TJ and and Rowan were having arguments with each other on Twitter about Civ Six, and I was sort of sitting there like, I'll bet that's really fun. I'll bet it's really good. I'll get to it just <laughs> oh any day God. now. I'll be able to play Civilization Six, and now I'll be lucky to like get a retail key. Yeah, no, it's 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 been it's been a trip, man. It has been a trip, uh, but it's it's hopefully stabilizing, and uh, you know, one way or another, things are going to be back on the rails and back on back on track very soon. Yes, because uh, I would not say it's been a stable equilibrium uh, the last couple months. But we're there. We're 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 making it happen, and uh, we've got a lot of cool shows coming up. So I think uh, I think everyone will be happy with it, and um, we'll have a great fall into our inevitable. Winter of Wargaming that goes into the spring. That always goes really smoothly. Uh, just as smoothly as the summer yeah. does. Yep. Just always. The winter uh, of Wargaming. Yes, the summer and the winter. Uh, we, we, we sometimes hit, hit snags uh, with, with two of the four seasons. Uh, but, but spring and fall, that's really where we, where, where we make bank. I'm in. Yeah. But Michael, I hope that I hope that was uh, I hope that was reassuring. It now, like I sort of made it sound like I have some sort of like rare undiagnosed illness, didn't I? Uh, it you know you could still um, it, these both can be happening, but um, yeah, I think I think it was good. Okay, sounds good. I do have a rare undiagnosed illness. Oh man, it's strategy game fever. <laughs> oh my god! Oh boy. Good night, folks. Now I hate you. Through the head, 2016. <laughs> Coming at you. <ya. laughs> okay.